Christopher Nolan may be one of the very few examples of a filmmaker who got to create the run of movies that he wanted to create and that he walked away deliberately on a high point and he got to say, okay, you know what? I'm done. Thank you very much. This is the Box Office Podcast. I am Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, the only trade publication in North America exclusively focused on covering the movie theater business. Joined once again by two of our co-hosts, Russ Fisher, the editorial director at Box Office Studios, which provides editorial content for movie theaters, and our own chief analyst here at Box Office Pro, Sean Robbins. We will be talking all about Batman. That's right. What you really wanted to listen to. Three grown adult men talking about <laughs> Batman and his little Batman friends. That's what we're doing today. A packed episode, including our weekend forecast for the opening weekend of the movie we just mentioned, Mad Reeves' The Batman, coming out from Warner Brothers. Let's go straight into our trade talk segment of the podcast, going over the biggest news in the exhibition business. Guys, we had the Cinemark earnings report last week. Some good news from the third largest circuit in North America. They made $1.51 billion in 2021, more than doubling their 2020 figures. That's a 120% improvement over 2020's results. The company has still not completely emerged from the crisis of the pandemic, but that Q4 release of Spider-Man No Way Home really helped it. It set new attendance records across the circuit. It's actually the highest grossing film ever released at Cinemark, period. Uh, A great little bit of momentum heading into 2022. And I guess let's just use that as a jumping off point, Sean, as we dive into our weekend forecast segment, because it is just such a packed week here and a lot we have to cover. Let's put you on the spot, Sean. We've only had one $100 million opening weekend since the start of the pandemic here in North America. Is it safe to say we have another one coming up with the release of The Batman on March 4th? I definitely think so. At this point, this is this is one of those movies where even if some of the high level analysis doesn't dramatically shift in the final days, the number crunching is going to go on up until that final moment of release, or at least uh, excluding the Tuesday and Wednesday specials preview releases, the actual wide release. But I, I think 100 million is a very safe bet at this stage. Our range has has kind of fluctuated a little bit in recent weeks. We're recording this two days before our final number will go out, but we've essentially been at the 130 to 170, which is a wide, it's a wide spectrum to cover, but it was essentially trying to factor in what the reception might be. And, and the fact that DC films really behave a lot differently than Marvel films in that, in that pre-release corridor. So what, what I think we'll see is definitely over 100 million. I think to me, probably the worst case bottom level scenario is, is something like 120 to 130, but I'm, I'm really increasingly confident about where this will end up. Russ, Sean, what are your early impressions of the marketing for this movie? If I'm not mistaken, I don't think any of us have seen it at this point. We just have the trailers and marketing campaign to go off. It, at the risk of, of you know, really kind of saying something risky, it looks like a Batman movie. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, when you're talking about a dark Batman movie, 
that is a Batman movie at this point. You know, we we haven't had a not dark Batman movie since, you know, Batman and Robin, the, the second Joel Schumacher movie, which... You Don't know, you forget May- my Lego Batman. My Lego oh, Batman was very point. much not dark. <laughs> This is a good point, although it was, uh, you know, it is sort of comically dark in its own way. But yeah, I guess I let's say live action Batman movie, uh, because, yeah, the Lego Batman is is different and worth seeing. Great movie. Super fun. Um, But, you know, it's not since Joel Joel Schumacher's last uh, Batman movie, which arguably killed the franchise. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, you know, they've all been dark movies. That's just the way it goes. And so it, it kind of comes down to details, right? It's like, what does the Batmobile look like? Who's, st- you know, the, the actors are different. Maybe the general costuming and approach is different. But beyond that, the marketing is pushing something that is very recognizably in line with the other Batman movies that have been made in the past 20 years. The franchise is obviously in a very different situation right now. I think there's always an inherent interest when when the character is is rebooted, in part because of the actor. And I think Robert Pattinson is, since day one, he's been an intriguing choice for this because he's really built his career post-Twilight in a lot of you know, art house type films and really built his his stature as an actor and not just doing young adult drama fantasy movies. Uh, and that to me is fascinating because in some ways he's, in many ways, he's far more well known than Christian Bale was when he started Batman Begins. Uh, so already I think that kind of creates a big difference. And the franchise, despite the fact that Affleck's run and the DCEU didn't really go over as well, they were big box office hits. They might have kind of you know tempered the enthusiasm of that franchise a little bit, but it's still well above where it was in the mid '90s after Batman and Robin. So, you know, all in all, I think Reeves's version really enters at a point on the timeline at a much healthier stage for for the IP. Sean, what are the factors that are going to help this movie overperform versus the factors that are going to have it come in a little bit over 100 million or in that 130 range that you were looking at the low end of expectations? Well, I think the big standout to me right now would be the reviews. The embargo went down on Monday. It's around high 80s right now on Rotten Tomatoes, fluctuating within that that 85 to 90 range. The franchise is also just consistent. Ever since Burton's film in 1989, it's set a number of opening weekend records. I don't think we can really talk about that in this case because it is a is a reboot. It's not a sequel. We'll, we'll probably talk about those bigger numbers in a few years if, if Reeves, Reeves does another one. Uh, but there's also the lack of competition. It's been a very slow market. Spider-Man was essentially the last major tentpole. Uncharted did really well, but that's, you know, we're talking the, the A-tier now release when we get to something like the Batman. Um, and we're entering spring. COVID cases are going down. And I think at this point, movie movie attendance is what it's going to be uh, with regard to the pandemic. So there, there are a lot of positives here. I kind of look on the other side of the spectrum, just to be fair, the three hour runtime might give some people some pause. I think the the gritty aspect that that Russ was talking about, even though it's, it's really always been there with Batman, this is certainly kind of to the next level. Uh, but that actually might end up being a strength. We kind of discussed that as, you know, it could have been a negative for Joker a few years ago. And what ended up happening was it was actually a major selling point. And it really has a open road ahead in the month of March. Not really too much to come in and trip up this movie, really up until April 1st with the release of Morbius from Sony. So it'll be interesting to see not only how this opens, but how it can hold on in the coming weeks. Let's use this as a transition point to our feature segment, guys. 
looking back at every live-action Batman film at the box office, at the movies, assessing their cultural impact and also their economic impact in, in an industry that has grown to record numbers alongside this franchise. Let's start in 1989. Russ, where were you in life in June 1989 when Tim Burton's Batman hit theaters? That was the summer before my senior year in high school. I was a huge comic book collector. I wasn't the biggest Batman fan. I read more Marvel books, but I read some DC stuff and I had a lot of, you know, Batman titles that I liked. I had read and, you know, owned first print copies of uh, Frank Miller's Dark Knight uh, series, for example, you know, stuff like that was really big for me. So I was exactly the audience for this movie when it came out. I was hyped and it paid off, you know, uh, the, the movie really worked and I think more than anything else, like this is the movie that made everything else that is happening in movies right now possible in a lot of ways. Um, there was every reason to think that this movie might not work. You know, the casting was almost like uh, having Nicholson as the Joker was almost like obvious that it shouldn't work. And then you're talking about Michael Keaton, who is kind of actually the equivalent of casting Robert Pattinson now, like this is a guy I was thinking about that, right? Career-wise, they were maybe in a similar level back in 1989 with with Keaton coming in. And let's not forget about Burden. I mean, that was a little bit of a left-field choice when you talk about a big blockbuster title. I feel like the, the thing with Batman almost certainly came down to Warner's being like, you know what? If it doesn't work, we'll still sell some toys. And (laughs) like we can make this work financially, even if the movie sucks, even if it bombs, we can still make it work because we'll merchandise it. You know, we'll make Nintendo games, which they did. We'll make toys. They did that like in crazy numbers. And so, you know, I mean, this movie, you look back at the way it was marketed. This was also kind of the apex of that 80s generation of movie tie in marketing. You know, it was like there was a Batman item for pretty much anything you could imagine. Um, You know, there were deals with uh, fast food chains. There was all of this stuff. It's like they went to the nines with this thing. And. You know, in a way, it was like it was both the beginning of what leads to where we are now, but it was also kind of the the last stand of some of that stuff where it was like, you know, obviously Star Wars did that big marketing again. Other titles tried it, but after Batman, nobody else quite did it in the same way, you know. And to your point, Russ, I think the fact that 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 black and yellow emblem is still popular today and has really it's really never gone away. I've seen it in my entire life since I was a kid. I really think that speaks to to what you're talking about about it really kind of having an impact at the time and it's still felt today uh, at throughout pop culture. Absolutely. Yeah. We have to remember also that this comes almost a decade after the release of the first Superman movie. That first Superman movie comes out in 1978, a year removed from Star Wars, where we're firmly in this new blockbuster, wide-release model of releasing films. A big change in the 1970s from the model that existed in distribution and exhibition prior to that. And it takes a decade, a decade to follow up with a big superhero movie. And when it does, let's face it, tonally, very, very different to see that 1989 Tim Burton Batman from what we had seen 
through the late 70s and early 80s with the Superman movies. You mentioned that it was 10 years since the first Superman movie, which is true, but more to the point, it was only two years since the last Superman movie. You know, Superman 4, The Quest for Peace came out in 1987 and it was a bomb. It's a movie they spent almost nothing on. Like I think Warner Brothers spent four times as much to make Batman as they did to make Superman 4. Um, Superman 4 was like a limp to the finish for that first Superman movie series. It, you know, it's such a non-entity that at this point, when virtually every middling movie from the 80s has a dedicated fan base now, like every movie has found some niche corner of the internet that is willing to go to bat for it as a terrific film. Literally nobody is going to step up to talk about how good Superman 4 actually is. <laughs> At least the third one had Richard Pryor in an evil computer. You can go with that anytime. The third one is weird. The third, you know, it's like the third one absolutely has its defenders and it has its fandom. The fourth movie's got nothing and deservedly so. It it is bad. This was a point where, as far as Warner Brothers is concerned, the superhero movie is at its lowest point. Um, and so they've got nothing to lose. Uh, it's like, yeah, sure, let's. we've got an auteur-ish guy who's done something who clearly cares about this. But let's see what we can do with it. Uh, obviously, they, they believed in it to some degree because they spent a lot of money on it. But beyond that, it was kind of like there was nowhere to go but up for superhero movies and for Batman at this point. This is like you mentioned, Russ, a time in the late 80s where if a big blockbuster comes out, it breaks in every part of the culture. Something that is very, very different to this fragmented media market we have today. How did that $40 million opening weekend hit back in 1989? Was that something you guys were aware of in the late 80s? I don't know that I could tell you that I was aware of the, of the money, but I mean, it was it was obviously a hit because... You know, a lot of movies, the way stuff works now is that you've got this big, big, you know, pre-opening rollout and then it, the movie comes out. And if it just does OK, you basically never hear about it again. You know, it almost falls off the cultural map. Batman didn't merely stick around. It really entrenched itself. You know, suddenly Batman was like a thing. It, Batman was everywhere. The notion that there would be a sequel to this movie was a foregone conclusion. Um, you know, it was, and, and I think that was the measure of success more than anything else is that it completely changed the cultural perception of superhero movies. Uh, you know, it was very much that like comics aren't just for kids kind of thing, but writ in the largest lettering possible. What's also interesting to me here is that after this movie comes out, makes $251 million in its domestic run, massive numbers from the late 80s, we don't see anyone else come in with their own superhero movie from Rival Studios. Instead, three years later, also in June, Tim Burton returns, literally, with Batman Returns, opening to $45 million, an even bigger opening, but domestically, the run of that title fell short with $162 million. It couldn't leg out the same way. Let's start with those personal recollections. At this point, I'm living in Guatemala. At this point, I have every Happy Meal, every toy that you can imagine. I still am not allowed to go see this movie, this second Batman movie. Sean, do you remember seeing this in theaters or did he have to wait for like HBO three years later? 
I do. I, I'm pretty sure. I don't think my parents took me to see the first one. I'm, I'm pretty confident this was the first Batman movie I ever saw in a theater. And I, I'll be honest, I thought it was weird. I was seven years old. Well, we're the same age, you and uh, you and I, Daniel. And I don't know what your experience was like, Russ. You probably took a lot more away from it than we, than I did. <laughs> it but was scary as hell. Are you seven, kidding me? Yeah, uh, the penguin. It it freaked me out a little bit. I can't think of a better adjective. Yeah, it didn't really fit By in design, with the toys we that got. That was the point. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was a bait and switch for children. How did you take this uh, at this point in college, Ross? You have a different perspective and appreciation and probably closer to what Tim Burton is trying to achieve here. Okay, so I saw this, yeah, in this, it was the summer between, I think, my sophomore and junior year in college. Um, my parents, I went to high school in West Texas, but my, my dad had been uh, transferred up to Calgary. And so I went back to Calgary for the summer where... I knew nobody because my parents moved up there while I was in college. Um, so I had no friends up there. I spent the summer kind of basically going to bookstores and comic book stores and record shops. That's what I did. And like uh, renting laser discs, <laughs> like renting a laser disc player <laughs> so I could rent laser discs. So I saw Batman Returns with my mom. And the thing is, my mom and I went to a lot of movies together. Like she and I saw, she loves action movies. So there was a lot of stuff that she and I saw together over the years. Like a bunch of my best like movie going experiences were with my mom because she was really into this stuff. We would talk about it afterwards. Um, you know, it's a large part of like why I do what I do now, but we, we went to see this like weirdo psychosexual superhero movie together. <laughs> and I do remember the car ride home being kind of quiet on the way back to their place. And it was a long, like they lived out in the country. So it was a long ride home from that movie. Uh, I loved it. But uh, yeah, it was clearly something different. It was clearly not... It, it was clearly the, the some of the intentions of, of Burton's first movie taken to uh, a deliberate extreme. And, uh, you know, I love that he did it. I'm sure Warner Brothers was kind of like, yeah, well, again, we can still make toys, I guess, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I think we can still make toys off of this is is essentially the defining ethos of, on the Warner Brothers side uh, up through the end of the Schumacher run. The interesting thing about this movie is that while you're appreciating it on a certain level, Ross, since you're a little older, Sean and I at seven, is it fair to say we were not really fans of these movies? Maybe we don't exactly get them. Maybe you don't really like them, but we buy into the marketing machine. We buy into the hype. We get all the toys. We get the special Happy Meal. And I think by the time we get to June in 1995 for Batman Forever, with Joel Schumacher taking the entire franchise on a different direction, I look back on this movie as something I really liked at the time. I probably wore off the VHS watching the home video version. But Sean, re-watching this thing is not easy. <laughs> How, what was your reaction when we got to those Schumacher films in, in 95 with Batman Forever? I had a very, yeah, I wore out the VHS. I, I loved seeing it in theaters. I was 10 years old, so I loved Jim Carrey at that point. I was, you know, even at 10, I loved the Seal song, Kiss from a Rose. Ooh, like, so I was good. just, I was all about it. My romantic side was coming out with that movie. <laughs> but 
yeah, it was still very much, I, I wouldn't have considered myself a diehard Batman fan at that point, even though I watched the movie religiously a couple of years at home. At, if anything, I remember watching the animated series on television and, and probably liking that a lot more than I had liked any of the movies up to that point. I was at a similar spot, to be honest. In 1995, that year we moved to the United States for just one year. Uh, it was in Battle Creek, Michigan. Uh, my dad gets transferred there for work. And I get there that very summer that Batman Forever opens, June 1995. And like you, Sean, I was a big Jim Carrey fan. This was at the point where Jim Carrey was probably at the height of his popularity. You had a new Batman with Val Kilmer. I didn't really knew, know who that guy was, but there was a star quality to that ensemble cast with Nicole Kidman, with Tommy Lee Jones. Russ, from your perspective, what was that cultural impact in 95 with a new tone star and director compared to that 1989 launch under Tim Burton? Oh, it was, I mean, night and day. Very different. I mean, personally, I hated the movie then. I barely tolerate it now. (laughs) What got this movie made is interesting in that you've got Joel Schumacher, who was not a blockbuster director, but he was making hits, you know, and he was making hits that had cultural impact. Uh, you know, the Lost Boys was a hit that had a long tail. Flatliners was, you know, uh, you know, a kind of a Brat Pack movie that uh, the second generation Brat Pack movie that did really well. Falling Down had cultural impact. The Client was a hit. All of these things. It's like he made movies that made money. It makes every bit of sense why they would turn to him to direct this thing. And I can see him being like, oh, yeah, let's make it more fun. Let's make it more like the Adam West TV show. We'll get Tommy Lee Jones, who was only a couple of years removed from The Fugitive, which was a massive hit uh, commercially and critically. You've got Jim Carrey, who's huge. You've got Nicole Kidman. You know, it's like who's on the cusp of becoming like Nicole capital letters, Nicole Kidman. Everything on paper made sense for this movie. But then, you know, you look at pairing Jim Carrey and and Tommy Lee Jones is. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it it's, it's, yeah, it's a great decision in hindsight. Like, I like to think about it. I don't like to see the results. No, the results I, I, just don't work on screen. It doesn't work at, at all because you've got guys who are like as polar opposites as it's possible to be from the perspective of actors and and from the perspective of of personalities i mean tommy lee jones is famously a guy who does not suffer fools at all and you have him against jim carrey who's by design the biggest fool in the business at the time so it's like that's just a recipe for disaster and on screen it doesn't work um behind the scenes their pairing you know gave us one of the greatest quotes in movie making history, which is Tommy Lee Jones supposedly telling Jim Carrey, I cannot sanction your buffoonery, which is <laughs> a thing I still say on a weekly basis. It's wonderful. But yeah, the movie's a mess. I see why people liked it, especially younger audiences. I get it. It's not for me. And I don't think it was for a lot of people. You know, it, it uh, I think that I think the ancillary aspects like the soundtrack had a much bigger impact than the actual movie itself. McDonald's at the time was selling like commemorative cups whenever you bought like the Batman Bat Burger or whatever right. the hell it was. <laughs> right. I think I have all yeah. of them. They're still <laughs> somewhere in my parents' house in Mexico, intact. The Riddler one, you have to pick it up with a little question mark. I just I I have these memories of this series of movies, like I said, where I remember the marketing campaigns a lot more than the movies themselves. 
And that's probably going to change when everything falls apart in June of 1997. <laughs> I mean, it, this is really, when we talk about franchise killers, this has to be among the top. You mentioned how Superman 4 derailed Superman for decades. Batman and Robin in June 1997 practically did the same for Batman at the movies. So we had Batman Forever break Not the opening practically. week. practically. <laughs> <laughs> Confirmed. It did. it did. Yes. So Batman Forever opened to 52 million in June 1995. It rebounds to 184 domestic run. So that's ahead of Batman Returns, but still below that 250 million blockbuster mark that the first Tim Burton movie does. Batman and Robin comes out in June 1997. What do you do with an ensemble movie that doesn't work with big stars? You add bigger stars, <laughs> more stars into the mix. You have Alicia Silverstone, a couple of years removed from Clueless. You have Arnold Schwarzenegger, who's just still cranking out the hits in his like second decade of superstardom. And it just, I mean, wow. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Where, where do we start? Um, Sean, uh, where did you see this movie? Do you, do, we're at the point where we'll probably remember the specific movie theaters that we saw this in. Yeah, this was at my hometown theater. Uh, it was a Carmike, and it's pretty much the only theater I ever went to <laughs> at, that, at that age. But really, my standout memory is, again, it goes back to the marketing. And I believe Taco Bell had this massive campaign going on with this movie. And I distinctly remember I had like a few tacos and a drink and you had to peel off these these little cards. If you matched enough of them, you would win money. And I, I swore that when I was going through the drive-thru, I peeled off a sticker from my cup. I thought I had matched three uh, Bruce Wayne's George Clooney's Ooh. I thought we had won a million dollars and I was like swearing up and down <laughs> to my parents in the car on the ride home we've won a million dollars I promise I've got the other two at home lo and behold we got home I didn't have the third Clooney it was a Batman and it had to be the same face oh, so no. I will always associate this movie and George Clooney to some extent with not winning a million dollars that's my memory for this movie. <laughs> that's, that's the worst memory to have of a very bad movie with very bad memories Russ, did you even care at this point? June 1997, you just sat through Batman Forever two years back. Do you even come back for this? Uh, I mean, we went. I probably saw it at the the old Lowe's Harvard Square Theater on Church Street, which is which became an AMC and is and is since shuttered. Uh, but I couldn't even attest to that. Yeah, I mean, the movie was obviously just a mess. I think that I, you know, I did go because I was watching ER at the time. And, you know, this is a point where the the boundaries between stars on television, stars in the movies was were very still pretty, still drawn in pretty thick, uh, sometimes uncrossable lines, you know. So George Clooney was this guy who was clearly a star on TV. I mean, there's just no question about it. ER turned him into one of the biggest, uh, you know, new household names. He was on magazine covers everywhere. It's like Clooney was the guy and he, uh, 
clearly had big screen ambitions, but up until this point, he still hadn't really cracked it. You know, he'd been in From Dust Till Dawn. He'd been in The Peacemaker, which didn't really make any noise. Uh, you know, he'd done some stuff like this. We're a year away from him doing Out of Sight with Steven Soderbergh, which is what really turned him into a movie star. So it was like, okay, he's going to be Batman. This is interesting. Let's see what happens. And, uh, you know, Clooney has famously many, many times talked about the fact that he was the guy who killed Batman. Clearly he's not. I don't think that you could have put anybody in the suit and made this movie work. Uh, it just wasn't fated to happen, giving everything else that was a part of the deal at the time. And it, you know, and it speaks to his star power that this movie did not destroy his career. So there's a lot, there's a lot to think about there, but yeah, as just as a watcher, as a fan, I wasn't having any of it. Uh, I am still not having any of it. You know, that this like Superman four, this is not a movie that I think deserves any sort of, you know, reappreciation, uh, that sort I mean, it's like, it's interesting to see Schumacher kind of going even further into his own, you know, kind of psychosexual stuff, much in the same way that Burton did. It's a shame that he couldn't do it in a movie that, that actually came together. You know, on my end, I remember I was living back in my hometown in Mexico when this came out. Uh, it was probably the first film I saw at uh, Cinepolis's first location in Querétaro, in my hometown, uh, not too far from my grandparents' house. And in this point in 1997, I still have a fond appreciation of these Batman movies of the series. I'm getting more into going out to watching movies. As you can probably tell, I'm moving countries like every two years. I think, Russ, you grew up in a similar way than I did. Going out to the movies was, like you, a big part of my social life. You, you, you change countries, you change languages, cultures, but you can still go to the movies every weekend and you'll probably go with one of your parents. That was really the way I grew up as well. I think a lot of uh, expatriate kids that, that grew up moving around had that experience. So I can say at this point, I'm a movie fan. I'm not sure if I'm appreciating movies. I'm just enjoying going to the movies. And this is probably the first movie I can remember where I was appalled by what I saw on the screen, that I was genuinely disappointed by going to the movies. And I wasn't the only one. A $42 million opening weekend here, the lowest since 1989's Batman, and only $107 million in its domestic run, the lowest total of any of these Batman movies at the box office. Like you mentioned, Russ, uh, George Clooney at the time probably thought, that's it, I killed this thing. And we didn't hear anything about this superhero except for some murmurs around the early 2000s after this independent filmmaker, Darren Aronofsky, who's breaking out with some dark, gritty movies, you start hearing in the background, he might be working on something. Darren Aronofsky had made at this point Pie and Requiem for a Dream, which were both kind of art house hits and critical successes, but also like dark. Uh, and in the case of Requiem for a Dream, just sort of relentlessly punishing in its own way. Like Re Requiem for a Dream was a a hard movie to watch. It's still a hard movie to watch. And so the notion of this guy doing a Batman movie at the time, supposedly based on Frank Miller's year one storyline, which ultimately was kind of uh, vaguely adapted uh, by by Christopher Nolan uh, for Batman Begins. But, you know, there were rumors of this sort of thing. And it was kind of interesting just because it was the this idea of Warner Brothers 
almost going back to the the Burton approach, you know, like, okay, uh, I think the main thing that the Schumacher movies set up is that like maybe goofy and colorful isn't the way to go with Batman on the big screen. I think that was the really the biggest thing. And I think that as much as the Burton movies set the stage for where we've been with Batman movies overall, and to a certain degree with superhero movies, which is to say a little more serious, you know, even taking the humor of the Marvel movies in stride, like a certain sort of realism, a certain tone that is, you know, for lack of a better word, like grounded, which is funny because neither of the Burton movies are grounded in anything other than (laughs) Tim Burton's own mind. But like there's, there's kind of a, there's a thing there that those movies have helped set in place. Uh, And the notion that, that Warner brothers would even give Batman to Darren Aronofsky tells you two things. One that, the Schumacher movies had failed so spectacularly that it was almost back where it was when Burton took it was sort of like, well, it can't be worse than these, you know, let's give it to this guy who's clearly not a commercial filmmaker. Uh, But then also like the notion of what the tone of these movies should be was pretty clearly set. Well, they don't end up going with Arnofsky. Instead, they take another filmmaker who's up and coming, Christopher Nolan, who at the time had come out with films like Following, like Memento, and this really resuscitates the franchise. I always think back to this scene in the movie Neighbors between Seth Rogen and Zac Efron, where they're talking about who they think of as Batman, who their Batman is. I think as we have this conversation, I think that's really relevant for people around our age. And Sean, for us, it has to be Christian Bale, right? I mean, these movies were actually good for a change. Yeah, I mean, unequivocally, my answer is yes. I think looking back as, as, as a kid, I always wanted to be a Batman fan. That's why I kept watching them at home on VHS like we talked about. I always wanted to be a fan of the character. But I felt like once Batman Begins and and that trilogy as a whole really came around, I saw the potential and it made me want to go back and read the graphic novels that I I had missed out on over the years. And I understood why people loved that character. And and Batman Begins was a huge part of that. But it was also, I think, you know, outside of the personal aspect, superhero movies were also turning a corner at the same time. And this was the era shortly after X-Men and Spider-Man. So we're kind of getting away from that point where it was just Superman and Batman making big blockbuster numbers. But that really put Begins in an interesting situation because it had all of that fatigue from the Schumacher films in the late 90s. And to be honest, Warner Brothers itself didn't really know how to market Batman Begins because of partly because of Nolan's tone. I distinctly remember Nickelback songs in the TV spots, oh. which to this day are on YouTube. <laughs> oh, no, and don't do that. Are replete. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's it's a running joke to this day. I think it always will be. Uh, eventually, they figured out just, just let the Zimmer and Newton Howard score sell these movies themselves. But early on, they were trying to mimic that Spider-Man success with, with pop music. And it just didn't work and it didn't connect. And you saw it at the box office initially. But of course, things changed very quickly. Yeah. I really liked Batman Begins. It works. Christian Bale is good in the role. The material clearly suits Christopher Nolan. He obviously had an affinity for it. You know, his casting is really on point, uh, especially I think, you know, the secret weapon of that movie is clearly Liam Neeson, who really helps kind of pull everything together. I think the big thing in a way that helps Batman Begins is that it sets up this thing that is it is visually very different from 
pretty much all the superhero movies that came before. Like Sam Raimi shot stuff on location with the Spider-Man movies to a certain extent. The X-Men movies shot on location a little bit as well. But, you know, by and large, like the Batman movies are all shot on sets. Like there's nothing in those movies that shot on a location for the most part. And then you've got Batman Begins, which creates a trend that, that you know, or, or, or sets a style that Nolan carries through the, his next two movies in the, in the series. Batman Begins is very much a location-based movie, and it feels different because of it. Like, it's not stuffed with things, you know? It's like, it feels not more real, because it's clearly not more real, but it's like recognizable and tangible in a way that I think really helps sell the entire experience of that story and that character. And I think that furthermore, that becomes a real big part of why The Dark Knight ends up working so well, especially once Christopher Nolan really takes to the IMAX camera. But, you know, I, th- I do think that like shooting it somewhere real gave that movie a quality that set it apart immediately from the other movies of its kind. And maybe in a way that isn't even obvious to some people who are watching it, uh, but it's like it does it just feels different and and that was a big part of that. I completely agree with that. It's the first Batman movie where I don't feel like a part of the set is gonna fall on the actors as I'm watching it. You have this sort of lived in feel to this film. And then moving on from Batman begins, this movie is probably what immortalizes the Christopher Nolan trilogy and really sets a big difference in making these movies big blockbuster movies in a way they hadn't been. Since Tim Burton's 1989 version of Batman, The Dark Knight opens in July 2008. It starts off directly from that open-ended cliffhanger at the end of Batman Begins that teases the Joker, a fantastic marketing campaign, a viral marketing campaign, probably one of the first marketing campaigns that gets the internet right in pre-release hype, we go from a $48 million opening weekend in Batman Begins to more than tripling that with A Dark Knight, $158 million opening weekend, three years later. Domestically, Batman Begins plays out to 205 million. Dark Knight hits 533 million. Sean, at this point, you're working this industry. You're looking at numbers professionally. How did you take in a release like The Dark Knight? This is one of those movies that at the time, I, I'm i 23 years old, and as you said, I'm just starting to work in this industry. It was actually the first movie I ever reviewed for a local publication at the beginning of my very short reviewing stint. I discovered that wasn't for me once I actually saw movies I didn't like and would have to write about them. <laughs> That's a side note. Twist ending, but, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Th- this was essentially, you know, it, you could tell it was capturing the zeitgeist a year before it came out, if not more so. People were talking about Batman Begins and rewatching it on DVD at the time. Uh, during those three years in between the movie, there was a, a significant amount of hype for the Joker. The teaser trailer came out a year in advance and just they played a clip of his voice and people were buzzing about it on the Internet. There was barely anything to even talk about. And then, of course, you know, unfortunately, Heath Ledger's passing in January. It really took that to this kind of next level. I, I hesitate to say that it, it made the movie any more interesting to anyone. I don't think that's I think it's kind of tacky to to put that on the movie, but it certainly added an aura to it especially when it became clear that his performance was going to be so iconic in those trailers that came out. And it just made, it made his death even more tragic that he was on the cusp of such an amazing career. 
But for him to have this kind of a role and to do what he did with it brought in a lot of people who probably weren't traditional Batman fans. And when that movie came out, it was the zeitgeist capture. It was like the Spider-Man 2002. It was it was the very rare kind of movie that everybody had to go see, no matter how old you were or how you felt about Batman. The Dark Knight was must-see theatrical entertainment. And Russ, you mentioned that this is the movie where Christopher Nolan discovers IMAX cameras. And I have to tell you, that's what takes me to the movie theater to watch a, a Batman movie. The fact that this has an anamorphic ratio shot specifically in the IMAX format. I was interested in it for that reason. How are you reacting to not only the production behind this movie, but also that viral marketing campaign in 2008? I mean, yeah, it was a huge deal. This is right at the time when I am stuck covering Comic-Con every summer. Uh, This movie opens basically during Comic-Con. It's, or I think maybe it opened the week after Comic-Con. It was right there where it was like the hype was huge. You know, I think that it's a ultimately it's a lightning in the bottle moment. You know, it's the right movie with the right people, especially Heath Ledger doing something. You know, you got to remember that when Heath Ledger's casting was announced, he was kind of seen as like a, you know, a pretty boy actor. And it was not received well. You know, there were there were a lot of corners uh, of fandom that thought that casting Heath Ledger as the Joker was a terrible idea. The heartthrob from a knight's tale? No way. Exactly. Uh, I mean, uh, even, <laughs> yeah. even I think casual people like myself, I was like, I don't We're see like, this what? guy working out at all. The guy totally. from 10 Things I Hate About You? It seemed no like way. a leap. Yeah. yeah. It was a big deal. and But I mean, the moment you see him, it's like, oh, God. Like, I mean, there, there was a – he had a quality in that movie that is – absolutely unique and it and i think that helped that movie transcend like all of the other aspects were a big deal but i think you do everything the same with the dark knight but you don't have heath ledger in it and that movie doesn't make 500 million dollars it just doesn't it's like that is the x factor that turned that movie from a thing that would have done very well and would probably have been very good into something that is unique you know there there's not another movie like it because of ledger's performance i I don't think that can be overstated you also got to look at this in context of like this is coming out just a few months after iron man you know Mm, a a movie that also hit half a billion dollars, a movie that nobody really expected to succeed. But it's it's interesting that it's like, this is really kind of like another tipping point where you have these two movies coming out at the same time, but they're very different movies. And they're really kind of making the point that this thing can work in a way that is, you know, not even what Tim Burton had imagined. So, yeah, I mean, I think the impact of The Dark Knight is huge. There, are, Like you said, not only the viral marketing, but also just the presence of that movie on the internet. I think it's always easy to overstate the effect that the internet has on making or breaking a movie's success. I think that there are far more factors than that. But I think in the case of The Dark Knight, a very activated fandom did help because you know, you don't get to that level of box office success without repeat business and the the internet fandom, which really took to this movie instantly uh, helped drive that. And I do think that, like I said just a minute ago, that if you take this movie exactly as it is, but with someone else playing the Joker, it doesn't have the success that it has. And part of that is, I think, because Ledger's death contributed an unfortunate sort of mystique to this movie in the sense that 
You've got a guy who nobody expected to perform in the way that he did in the movie. People see the film and they're, I think, rightfully blown away by what he does. It's extremely effective. It leaves you wanting more. Like you want to see more of what this actor can do because he's surprised you. You know, he's done a thing that I, I think a lot of people didn't expect him to do. And I think that it certainly propelled it forward because suddenly this is the only way that you can see this thing from this actor. There's no more to have. There's nothing else that we're going to be able to see. And ultimately, I think that culminates with the Oscar win, which recognizes in a lot of ways, both the effectiveness of, of his performance, which is undeniable, but also the, the whole unfortunate uh, legacy of the end of his life. And that span of four years between the release of The Dark Knight in July 2008 and the release of The Dark Knight Rises, the third part of Nolan's trilogy in July 2012, left a different sort of cliffhanger on the series. Now, when Batman Begin ends, you have that famous shot of the playing card with a Joker. Everyone's excited about the sequel. Like you mentioned, Russ, at the end of The Dark Knight, we don't really know where this trilogy is going to go. I don't know if you guys know too much of what was originally planned for the third installment of The Dark Knight Rises, how much it changed, how much it didn't. But can we talk about that lead up to July 2012 on the fan expectation, which is huge for the final part of the Nolan trilogy. I think there's been a lot of speculation, especially at the time, as to how much Nolan had planned out. We'll probably never know for sure exactly, but I think he's, I think even Christopher Nolan himself is on record as saying he takes these movies one at a time. Any idea of a third movie or closing out the trilogy probably wasn't fully fleshed out. But, you know, on the other side of that, in terms of what might never be said publicly, it makes sense to think that the Joker and Heath Ledger likely, not definitely, but likely would have factored into a third film. So it's it's hard to imagine that that didn't impact, you know, all of the the studio and, and Nolan's thinking as to where to go. But also in that interim, Christopher Nolan made Inception. And that really kind of cemented his status as a new blockbuster A-list director that could attract people, audiences with his name. It wasn't just Batman bringing out people anymore. Uh, so that that really kind of changed the game, even for Dark Knight Rises and all of the goodwill that the previous two movies in the trilogy had leading into that. And I think that, yeah, I mean, as you say, the fan expectations around the Dark Knight Rises were massive. And I think by any standard, unreasonable. <laughs> you know, you're coming <laughs> off of this movie that surprised people and performed far beyond expectations. And so the, the, you know, everybody's looking for this sort of even more deeply imagined masterpiece to follow it. And it's an almost impossible situation for Christopher Nolan. I think he understood that too. I mean, things that I've heard, you know, you hear a lot of different stories and I think it's open to question how interested Christopher Nolan really was in doing a third movie. You know, I think he, he was obviously expected to do a third movie. I think contractually, he was bound to do a third movie. I kind of, I've always had the sense that maybe by the time he got to that point, it wasn't the highest thing on his priority list. I think Inception was much higher on his priority list. Uh, I think the general understanding is that he got to do Inception because he had delivered The Dark Knight and he was going to do The Dark Knight Rises. These thing, one thing was contingent on the other, right? But The Dark Knight Rises is also interesting in that it is, I think, a more overtly reactionary movie 
in terms of grounding Batman as a character in kind of real world scenarios. You know, you've got this movie that's being made following the rise of the Tea Party movement in the United States. There are, you know, big political things happening in the US at the time that I think are absolutely not one-to-one reflected in The Dark Knight Rises, but that inform it absolutely. And there's an aura to The Dark Knight Rises that makes it very different from the previous two Batman movies that Nolan had made. I don't think it's a movie that entirely works in the way that it presents itself, but it certainly does have like uh, again, kind of a mystique. It's maybe a different mystique, thanks in part to Tom Mumbles Hardy and uh, <laughs> his Bane mask. Which I mean, I I think the thing I remember most about The Dark Knight Rises was I was living in Austin, Texas at the time. I went to the Bob Bullock Theater, which is uh, or at the time was a seventy millimeter, like a full film IMAX presentation. I saw that uh, the plane sequence uh, from The Dark Knight Rises in IMAX was really interested and very excited and came out of it like, oh no, this is (laughs) maybe not going to work because I couldn't understand a damn thing that Tom Hardy said in that sequence. I couldn't, and so the whole thing, I was like, am I missing something or is this kind of a mess? And I and I think that you know certainly the movie performed, but it just you know it wasn't the Dark Knight. It wasn't the same thing over again. And credit to Nolan for not just doing the same thing again. Credit to him for trying something different, whatever his level of interest was. But I think there's no question that it's a softer finale than people were hoping for. To me, it felt a little bit like a James Bond movie, to be perfectly honest. You have that big action set piece, you have international locales, you have a little bit of a political subtext there, which yes, it's simplistic, yes, it hits you over the head a little bit too easily, but it's not meant to drive the narrative, it just informs a little bit of the characters, of the world behind it. It seemed like the only thing hampering this movie is that it had to work Batman in there somehow. (laughs) And all of the Batman friends. Other than that, it seems to me like it would have been a fairly good spy thriller. Sean, what was your reaction after having seen this third entry in the franchise? Overall, I loved it. I've always had trouble comparing any of the three films because I think all three in the trilogy have very specific and unique identities. Uh, In a lot of ways, Batman Begins can't be compared to The Dark Knight simply because it is establishing the story in a way that we had really never seen for Bruce Wayne and Batman. It it really became clear that Nolan was was telling us a Bruce Wayne story. I think that's the thread by the end of those three movies. As, as much as this is marketed and sold as a Batman franchise, it's the first time we really got to know Bruce Wayne in, with such depth. So to me, that's one reason I, I loved a lot of Rises. But it's, you bring up a great point. It was with it was working in Batman at some points in the story. And if you take out that aspect, it certainly could have worked in its own right. But you know, for me, it was it was a great emotional ending, and I, I still I still go back to it. You know, regularly if I want to throw something on in the background that I'm familiar with and and don't necessarily need to pay attention to. But it certainly was, I think, one of those one of those movies that has taken time to maybe ingratiate itself a little bit more with fans than it did when it came out because exactly of, of, of what Russ said, the expectations were just so, so high for it at the time. And financially, this is a film that hit more or less the same benchmarks as its predecessor, a $160 million opening weekend and a $448 million 
domestic run. And maybe we can use that as a sort of uh, brief pause to say goodbye to the Christopher Nolan trilogy. And as we say goodbye to the Christopher Nolan movies, I think that one of the really interesting points here is that Christopher Nolan may be one of the very few examples of a filmmaker who got to create the run of movies that he wanted to create and that he walked away deliberately of his own volition on a high point. You know, by any meter, uh, The Dark Knight Rises is a success, financially at least. And very typically, certainly we've seen it with Batman already, where Tim Burton in Warner Brothers couldn't come to an agreement on his third Batman movie. Uh, Joel Schumacher's run ended with a sort of disaster. Very, You know, these things happen very often where up to this point where – it's rare that a filmmaker gets to say, okay, you know what? I'm done. And that's literally it. I'm going to do three of these and that's it. That's what you get. And Nolan created a very unique scenario with that in, in that he defined that, if not from the beginning, certainly by the midpoint and he held to it. And while he was around as a producer and, you know, by all reports seemed to vet Zack Snyder when it came to stepping in to do Batman v Superman. It's still an interesting thing that these three movies were Nolan's movies. They're nobody else's. And he got to say, okay, you know what? I'm done. Thank you very much. And that director role, as you mentioned, Russ, is pretty much thrown out the window once we get to the DC Extended Universe. You mentioned that Nolan is still a producer on these films, but Zack Snyder comes in with Man of Steel, the Superman title, reboots that series for Warner Brothers. His next assignment is to introduce Batman in a Batman versus Superman sequel, subtitled Dawn of Justice in March 2016. Uh, wow, a, a big risk here of a title that seemed like something an eight-year-old boy came up with. Uh, Sean, what was your uh, reaction seeing this basically hit screens and and covering what was at the time a huge opening weekend, if, and if I'm not mistaken, is it still a historic second weekend drop in terms of week-to-week holdovers? It is. I don't remember exactly how high it is uh, in terms of maybe the sharpest drop of all time for such a major opener, but it is certainly up there. And, you know, this was a, a movie that had been b- brewing for years, decades, honestly. And I think the, f- the, the one of the major missteps was that Warner Brothers clearly saw what Marvel had been doing by that point. After 2016, there have already been two Avengers movies. So at least one of those has well informed this attempt to grow the DC universe with Zack Snyder at the helm and introducing Batman, a new Batman to be specific for the first time in what was essentially a Superman sequel to Man of Steel was really its undoing. Uh, we, we, I think we can all point to a lot of opinions on the movie and, and why it was so front-loaded and lost a lot of its audience after that major opening weekend. But it was really the first clear signal that Warner Brothers was rushing this attempt to mirror Marvel instead of doing their own thing. And that that would play out for, for several years after as well. I, I'll never forget this, Sean. I remember watching this movie and, and talking to you about it socially. And you mentioned, there's a good movie somewhere in here. It's just, it's, it's lost somewhere in the edits. There's great moments in there. That's how I ended up feeling. I love the action sequences, but the film itself, I'm not sure too many people responded too well for it. I, you know, 
I'll say I'm not a fan of the movie overall. It's in general, Zack Snyder's movies are not for me. Clearly, there is an audience that they're for. You know, he has a huge fan base, and those audiences really get something out of his movies. And I'm glad. That's great. I do like Ben Affleck as Batman. I like Ben Affleck as an actor, and I like him as a director. There was the point where he was going to direct a solo Batman movie in which he would also star, which seems like almost a monumentally difficult task to set for yourself. And I was really curious to see how he would do that because as a director, I generally like his movies and I do like his vision of Batman. I don't think it ever quite became what it could have been, but I like the idea at the very least. And so, yeah, it's uh, the, the Snyder movies ultimately just feel like something that never quite gelled in the way they might have been able to. And clearly there's a big story around, you know, the movie that followed and, you know, Justice League and whether or not Warner Brothers was ever going to be willing to let Snyder do the movie he wanted to do. There, There's a lot there uh, that we maybe don't have time to get into. And I think one of those reasons why Band of Steel, I think, works best is it's not trying to set up three sequels. Man of Steel is a pretty good standalone movie where every movie in this DC extended universe that follows, like you say, Sean, is trying to emulate the Marvel franchise by carrying on its shoulders three different franchises it's trying to introduce. I think the best way to look at this is after that March 2016 release, this movie opens to 166 million. It ends up at 330 million domestic. That's the biggest opening weekend of any Batman movie ever, but 330 that's less than The Dark Knight and The Dark Knight Rises when we see that cumulative run. In that interim between March 2016 and the November 2017 release of Justice League, we have Suicide Squad with a Batman cameo with Ben Affleck in August 2016. We've got the Lego Batman movie that I love, that I think we all have an appreciation <laughs> with. That comes out in February 2017. And then finally, only about 18 months later or so, Justice League comes out after an extremely troubled production in November 2017, opens under 100 million at 93 million, ends up at 229 million domestic, and I think puts a massive question mark on where this entire DC Extended Universe plan is going, and I think conditions the production of that standalone Batman film with Ben Affleck coming at a career, let's not forget, Russ, this is post-Academy Award Ben Affleck. This is Ben Affleck after he's reached the highest of the highs of his career, he's resuscitated his career, and he decides to commit himself to Batman. I just feel we lost something there from what could have been a very interesting filmmaking career with his decision to go in into this DC Extended Universe. I mean, I, I agree with that, and I think you read interviews with him now, and I think he even would agree with that. <laughs> and and it seems like he's working to maybe find the path again that will that will take him forward in his career. You know, I think the thing that also the elephant in the room when it comes to Warner Brothers and DC movies is Marvel Studios. And the thing that Warner Brothers has never had is whether it exists behind the scenes, those DC movies do not communicate the feeling of confidence and cohesion that the Marvel movies do right. in the sense of they do not make you feel like this is organically all part of a bigger thing. And I think that's in part because 
Marvel sort of files down a lot of the impulses of the directors, even when they're larger directors, maybe with the uh, exception of someone like James Gunn, who does kind of seem to make James Gunn movies, but he he still does it within the feeling of of Marvel. So maybe they let him go with it. And if you've watched the Suicide Squad and or the Peacemaker show, it's like those also feel like James Gunn projects, but they also feel as if they kind of belong in that DC world. So maybe he just finds a way to make it work. Regardless, the point is that Warner Brothers clearly felt pressure to jumpstart a giant cohesive shared superhero universe a la Marvel Studios. I think that is, you know, the reason for getting Batman in there super quick, as you said, in a movie that ultimately did not feel very organic in its attempt to do so. And it's that's a thing that Warner Brothers and DC have very publicly struggled with for years now is where do they stand vis-a-vis Marvel Studios and that you know, big Marvel Cinematic Universe. And I think that ultimately DC came to the conclusion that they shouldn't try because that's not what they're doing. And it seems like maybe they're on better footing now, but unfortunately, uh, you know, Zack Snyder's movies were the ones that were caught in that middle period where I, I think there were a lot of people who are not trying to do the same thing at the same time. And to your point, I think Justice League had a very unfortunate timing of opening just a few weeks after Thor Ragnarok, which I would argue is another example of a James Gunn. Taika Waititi makes Taika Waititi movies. And Justice League is coming out two or three weeks later and presenting this mishmash of – I mean, I'm trying not to say this in an unfavorable way because, I, like I said, I don't, I'm not a film critic, but – that is certainly a movie that very clearly had no vision behind it, no vision to unite where it was going. Under normal circumstances, the franchise was already suffering because of Dawn of Justice. And that effectively, in some ways, led to what was a great story, I think, last year for Snyder and for fans in the industry with this movement to push out his director's cut four-hour version of Justice League, which had a really strong reception from fans. And it it makes me wonder had more time been taken to build into that kind of movie, sp- spread it out over a couple of movies, how differently could this era have gone? And including, especially with Affleck's Batman, I think we, we could have heard more from him as well as part of all of that. It seems like that MCU emulation plan that you were talking about, Russ, throwing those plans out the window, I think that's what we see after that. We don't see the Batman universe come back on screen through Warner Brothers until the release of Joker in October 2019 in a movie that's actually not connected at all with any Mm -hmm. of the movies we've been talking about. Uh, The darkest, grittiest of all these movies, Batman isn't even in there. There's like a very young Bruce Wayne that shows up for a scene or two. This movie comes in with a very different sort of ambition, gets another Academy Award win for a guy playing this role. I don't want to spend too much time talking about Joker, but I I do think we have to bring it up as an example of a one-off movie in this Batman universe having great success. And if you guys have any indication that Warner Brothers is willing to continue this one-off strategy or build on that standalone success of that Joker movie. I think they're trying to do both, you know, because Matt Reeves' new movie, The Batman, is also not related to anything else. It's disconnected. But the Flash movie that is coming out soon is very much related. And actually, I think, seems to be working 
to uh, be to the DC movies what Spider-Man No Way Home was to the Marvel movies in that, uh, you know, Michael Keaton is coming back as Batman because you've got the Flash crossing dimensional boundaries. And so it gives him, you know, suddenly he gets to meet the Michael Keaton Batman. He gets to meet other versions of the Flash. You know, it's the uh, it's the Spider-Verse and, and No Way Home, you know, multiverse thing happening on DC's side. I think we've seen in comics, it's like wildly simplistic to boil it down like this, but I'm going to do it anyway. You've got your ongoing books, which are written and drawn by talented people, who, but who are working under the ultimate controlling hand of editors who kind of keep a bigger storyline on track. And then you've got the occasional things, you know, Frank Miller's The Dark Knight is an obvious example, but there are many, many more where maybe somebody who's a big name comes and says, you know what, I've got a weird Superman story I want to do. And they say, yeah, your name plus Superman is going to sell books. Go ahead and do it. It doesn't matter if it's attached to anything else or not. Marvel is working very much in the everything is connected modality. DC is, you know, tried to do that. It didn't work. Now they've kind of gone a little bit more in the other direction where it's like, let's just get names uh, to do stories that might capture people's attention. So we've seen Joker. We've seen Matt Reeves, Batman, uh, things like that. But they're also kind of trying to do the let's keep everything connected question. And it really uh, remains to be seen how it's going to play out for DC as a larger strategy. I I genuinely don't know. And the performance of Joker is actually the last mega hit that Warner Brothers has had, period. Joker, opening in October 2019, went on to gross $335 million at the domestic box office Since then, Warner Brothers hasn't really had a shot at releasing a tentpole because of the pandemic. We saw they did their best to help cinemas out in 2020 with the release of Christopher Nolan's Tenet. But after that, it was the day and date game that really took them out of contention of hitting big blockbuster heights in the market. And in that interim, we have releases from the DC Extended Universe like Birds of Prey in February 2020, like Wonder Woman 84 at the end of 2020, and The Suicide Squad in August 2021, none of them really being $100 million grocers. Turning the expectations for this Matt Reeves title, The Batman, coming out on March 4th, to be massive when we look at them in the context of this franchise. So as we bring all of that to a head, this very long conversation that we've had about all these Batman movies, why are you guys interested after all these years of growing up around Batman movies to see this specific take on the character? What's bringing you to the theaters this weekend, guys? Uh, Two things. Robert Pattinson, because he's an actor who makes interesting decisions, both a a big picture sense in what movies he chooses, but then also I think he makes interesting decisions in the way that he plays his characters. You put him in a costume like this, and I want to see what happens. So that's number one. Number two is certainly Matt Reeves. I talked earlier about the fact that Christopher Nolan got to do a trilogy of Batman movies and walk away and be done. Matt Reeves did the same thing with the Planet of the Apes movies. He clearly went into those movies with a plan. It seems like he executed it nearly flawlessly. I think every one of those movies got better. And so you look at him coming into Batman. He's one of many people Warner Brothers looked at 
to replace Ben Affleck when Affleck decided not to direct the movie. And he was at Reeves was actually making his last Planet of the Apes movie when he got this job. And I think it says a lot that that was what, like five years ago now. And Warner Brothers was willing to say, okay, you know, like finish that movie. He decided not to use uh, the script that had been put together for Ben Affleck's movie, ultimately decided, you know, I think mutually with Affleck that they were going to find someone else to star. Like that's all a lot of process. And it's really interesting to me that Warner Brothers said, you know what? Cool. We'll wait, like get it together. Uh, We're not going to rush this thing forward. Do the thing you want to do. We see what you did with the apes movies. I think we trust you on this. So that to me, you know, coming off the heels of a culture where it seemed like Warner Brothers was impatient and racing to get movies onto the screen, uh, it's a very different approach. And so I want to see what uh, what it led to. Yeah, I absolutely echo Pattinson. I think when his announcement as the character was made, that it got my attention. I was already interested because of Reeves and of where it seemed like that story could go, but. This just seems like a a pitch perfect type of role for him where he's at in his career right now. For me personally, I have to tell you guys, I haven't seen Matt Reeves' directorial debut, The Paul Bearer, but I have seen all the other films he's directed. All of them sound like terrible ideas on paper. I love all those movies. Cloverfield, (laughs) big monster movie, found footage. Adore that movie. Loved it, yeah. He dared to remake one of my favorite horror movies of the last 20 years, Let the Right One In. He actually did a great job. Let Me In does a fantastic or as good a job as you possibly can remaking that Scandinavian vampire movie. And then he goes in after a great reboot of uh, The Planet of the Apes and does two sequels that are just as good, if not better. That guy alone is the reason why I'm going to buy a ticket to see this movie. Yeah, that makes total sense to me. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm right there with you. Well, guys, thank you so much for joining me in this marathon session. Um, I can't believe that the longest podcast episode we've ever done is three grown men <laughs> talking about Batman. But it's been a big part of our lives. I, I think it's been a big part of our movie going lives. I think anyone of our generation can probably relate to sort of going through life's moments by who Batman is at any given <laughs> point <laughs> in our lifelines. Russ, Sean, thank you so much for joining us once again. That's it for this week's edition of the Box Office Podcast, which is produced in collaboration between Box Office Pro, the Box Office Company, and Record Edit Podcast. Join us once again next week when we discuss just how well Matt Reeves' The Batman did in its opening weekend at the Box Office.